Margay, their eyes are too big and they're all googly-eyed. Pumas, their faces are too short and they look weird. Jagarundis, you know, it's like somebody crossed a house cat with a weasel, but an ocelot. An ocelot is like the most beautiful cat species that we have. And it has coloration and patterns of all the cats from across the world. They're freaking awesome. Welcome. This is the Into the Wilderness podcast, and I am your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 213. And this week, I am joined by Mr. Tyler Sharp, editor-in-chief of the publication Modern Huntsman, who is going to be my co-host. And we are speaking to the brilliant storyteller and filmmaker that is Ben Masters. We talk all about his incredible new feature film, Deep in the Heart, and tackle a host of controversial topics which cross the bounds between conservation and hunting. Now, we have had a lot of amazing feedback from Modern Huntsman Volume 9. And if you haven't seen it or have a copy of your own, head over to modernhuntsman.com and you can get a peek inside and order a copy. Or better still, get a subscription, which puts you first in line to have the two books a year delivered to your doorstep before anyone else. A quick update from me on something that I've been working on for more than two years now, and I have mentioned on and off on the podcast over that period. Um, in 2019, I started working on a documentary that initially was about relocating elephants from Namibia to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that film ended up taking on a kind of life of its own and kind of to some extent being about something else, much more about the people and the sacrifices of what real conservation on the ground is. Now, I have just released a trailer slash fundraiser for that film called Paid in Blood. It is on YouTube. If you search for Byron Pace Film on YouTube, you will find that YouTube channel. And it's the most recent video upload there. And if you follow me on Instagram at Byron J. Pace, you can also see it on my wall and on um, as a reel as well. Um, but it's a reel in like normal 1920 by 1080 format. Uh, and watch that. It's three and a half minutes. I would love to hear your comments. Um, support would be massively appreciated. Or if there is anybody you know who you think might be able to help, even if it is that they have expertise in the world of filmmaking and it's not about a monetary donation to help post-production finish, um, it's more about an exchange of expertise, that is also absolutely welcome. Um, please go check it out. I'm going to stick the link, the direct link for the YouTube to watch the trailer in the description of the show if you want to go and check it out that way. And lastly, a quick shout out to the top tier Patreon supporters, this week, who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of Artie Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And if you would like to get in contact with the show and chat to me, you can find me on the socials at Byron J. Pace, or you can send an email if you would like to do it that way, info at paceproductionsuk.com. Anything from guest suggestions to comments, I love to hear from you all. Ben, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Uh, I'm going to kick this show off by saying that Tyler and I and a few select group of people had the privilege of watching your film on like a little private premiere a couple of weeks ago, uh, your latest one, all about Texas and nature in Texas, and it was mind-blowing. Congratulations. 
Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Where did that process start for you? Because that that the, that was a nature documentary on the kind of level of you know Blue Planet, Our Planet, the kind of huge big BBC productions that that people are more familiar with over the last twenty years. That's not something that you say, "Hey, next month we're going to make a wildlife documentary," and then all of a sudden you kick that out. That must be a lot of planning and a lot of work to pull something like that off. It was. Um... I mean, I think in a way I've kind of been wanting to make a film like Deep in the Heart my entire life. Um, growing up, Amarillo, you know, I spent a lot of time in the woods hunting with my dad and uh, working on different ranches. And I've always been very fascinated with the natural world and uh, went on to study wildlife biology at Texas A&M. And Whenever I graduated, I went into film rather than to any type of research. Uh, did a movie called Unbranded that kind of opened my eyes up to the to the power that that films can have. And I, I think like everybody, kind of fantasize about being a National Geographic photographer and trying to capture videos or behaviors that nobody's ever seen before. And, um about three years ago, decided to embark on this production uh, to create Texas's first wildlife movie, uh, which we call Deep in the Heart, and to showcase a lot of these different species and behaviors and ecosystems that are unique to Texas and are not only, you know, really pretty to look at, but symbolize something a little bit bigger than just a beautiful animal doing something cool. You know, how does it relate to uh, water policy or what is the conservation story behind it? And we put together a, a dream team of filmmakers and spent about two years, two and a half years in the woods uh, filming these different sequences, mountain lions, ocelots, uh, alligator gar, Guadalupe bass, redfish, uh, coral spawn offshore, just a lot of really cool Texas animals and put it, put it about a year or so uh, into the edit and released it um, a couple months back. And man, it's been really cool to see it get, see it be received by, uh, by a lot of people, you know, ranging from, you know, hunters to kind of like more of your vegan environmentalists. Uh, and it's just a celebration of our state, man. Texas is freaking rad. <laughs> I, 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 can att I can attest to that, having spent a little bit of time there, and I've only seen a fraction of it. I have so many questions about this film. I think one of the first things I wanted to ask you is that one of the first things that you mentioned there was that you wanted to make something that had impact. Because one of the, not well, I suppose criticisms, yeah, that I have often of wildlife or nature documentaries is that they are beautiful spectacles of, of nature and sometimes they capture things that have never been captured before. But that's kind of where it begins and ends. And yes, it, it may enthuse people to care more about that place or that species. But in your film, you took it that step further and you were pointing people in the direction of things that they should concern themselves about if they care about the natural world. And that was obviously a conscious decision on your part and, and your team. Yeah, it was. And I mean, that's just the reality of wildlife today is it's not separated by 
you know, it's not like there's this wild place that humans don't impact. Like it's a wild place because we've chosen for it to be wild. And, you know, having wildlife is a conscious decision that we make uh, and one that we, we should make always. Um, but it also, I think, just adds a lot of historical perspective. And, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the film is scene one with the bison. And that was kind of our baseline starting point of the movie is, okay, where does our character begin? How does it develop? Well, our character was our relationship with with wildlife in Texas, and we decided to choose the bison slaughter as kind of, um, you know, point number one. This was the historical baseline in which we should definitely never aspire to do, where literally all of our bison were slaughtered with the exception of just a handful. And then, you know, one of Texas's earliest conservationists, a lady by the name of Molly Goodnight, her and her husband, Charles Goodnight, they collected about a half dozen of them and, you know, saved the Southern Plains bison herd from extinction and then slowly grew it. And then that herd, you know, continues to live on today in Caprock Canyon State Park. And I feel like you know, just to show these buffalo calves out learning their first steps and how to run across the prairie, that's cool. But their story, like the importance of what they're doing and them running across the prairie is so much more impactful whenever you get that that backstory and that history behind how fascinating our Texas bison herd is. So yeah, within all the transitions between the different species and behaviors, we definitely tried to, you know, provide some historical context, provide some conservation hope. Like that's another thing that I that bugs me about a lot of wildlife films or a lot of environmental films is sometimes they can get to be like almost anti-human. Definitely, yeah. And um, you know, there's so many stories of success that are happening in Texas. And we spent a lot of time focusing on those because, you know, there's 150 years of individuals doing phenomenal things for conservation in our state and, and everywhere else. And those efforts should be applauded and held on a golden platter and uh, we should do more of them. So yeah, really tried to, to showcase off that kind of stuff and make it cool. Not a lot of people think of Texas and bison together. I think most people are thinking bison in North America, it's it's Montana. Tell me a little bit more about the bison that exist in Texas and existed. Yeah, so, you know, if you went back in time, 250 years in Texas, you would have had bison all across the Panhandle region, the Rolling Plains region, down into the hill country, into Edwards Plateau. That's where most of the time your really massive herds would be. Likely they would come down into the Gulf Coastal Plains as well um, during times of hardship. West Texas and Transpecos, you would have had scattered bands. East Texas, there's you know a lot of documentation of scattered bands. But you would have had these huge herds of you know hundreds of thousands of animals traveling around and moving from you know wherever the best feed is at a time from their winter pasture range to their summer range. Uh, one of the most amazing uh, passages that I've found while researching this film was written by 
Charles Goodnight in one of his early explorations of Texas. And they encountered a, a single herd of bison that stretched for 60 miles as it was traveling. And they just had to wait it out because it was so thick that they couldn't you know, safely pass their wagons and their horses through it. So you imagine an animal like that and its impact that it had on the grasslands and on, you know, what, what species grew, what, um, you know, the trails that they made and, you know, Buffalo were definitely a very important part of the Texas ecosystem. And a lot of times today you'll see a lot of really good ranch management practices using rotational grazing, using high density grazing, and they can almost kind of replicate some of those processes and that that the bison did. But yeah, definitely a, an important species in the state and and one that I find another another really interesting historical thing that I found was um they knew that the buffalo were going to be killed out of Texas. And the state legislature back in the 1870s actually had this big discussion about like, should we try to pass some type of, you know, a law or acknowledge that, you know, these things are on the massive decline and should we prevent that? And there was a, an army officer that came down and presented his case and he, he gave this famous quote, I can't remember exact word for word, but it went some to the extent of like, these buffalo hunters eliminating the bison have done more good to rid the plains of the Indians than the cavalry has done over the last five decades. And that was the, the impetus that kind of put, uh, put an end to the legislature passing anything to, to get rid of bison. And it was a private individual that saved them from extinction. And, you know, it's been uh, private ranches that have brought bison back over the last 130 years. So where does this all begin for you, Ben? Is it assembling the team? Is it a, a year of research beforehand? I, I, we had the, the privilege of meeting some of your team members who were part of this whole process, incredible characters. So what comes first? I think that, you know, again, I've, I've, I mean, this is this is my life dream to make this movie. I mean, a, a wild. So you were you were born. That's what state. came first, then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been thinking about this for years. I mean, you know, we've been doing short films for Borderlands Research Institute, for Tex Parks and Wildlife Foundation, for the Nature Conservancy, for Yeti. Like, we've been able. I've got a little small film production company. We've been able to go all across the state and kind of see all these different places and all these amazing stories. So they've always been kind of cooking in my mind of like, how can I create a feature length film out of this? Um, but I think, you know, the big, the big plunge happened, you know, about three years ago, whenever we did the company formation documents and we laid out a pitch and we put together like our vision of what stories are we going to tell? What species are we going to tell? What's going to be the emotional flow of the film? How is it going to actually work? And then we, laid out all the different sequences, um, how we wanted to film them. And then it was up to the cinematography team um, to go out and execute on that vision. 
some of the shoots, you know, for example, the ocelot. Yeah. That what a took, highlight. Incredible. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, it took us 10 months of filming to get that ocelot sequence. Wow. It took us three <laughs> months before we got a shot, like a single clip of a cat. That must be so frustrating because oh, this, a, a lot of this is with camera traps, isn't it? A lot of it was camera traps just banging our heads against into the brush and just like getting covered in ticks. It was gross. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were in, we ended up just hitting the jackpot. And as soon as we got our custom camera trap system dialed in, we discovered that not only were this the ocelot in the area very interested and very cinematic and would hang out in front of the cameras, she also had kittens. So we just stumbled into this remarkable luck of getting to see not only the first footage of our most endangered cat, but what it takes for her to raise her kitten over the course of, you know, six or so months is how long we filmed that kitten. And that was a, that was a really, really cool experience, uh, getting, getting to see that. I mean, it's like people are so fascinated with wild cats and you just get these little glimpses of them crossing the road or through a spotting scope, but to actually immerse yourself into their world and get to see them hunt, uh, get to see them, um, you know, establish their territories. It was just a really cool treat to get to see all those behaviors. Well, and, 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 and Ben, it, uh, you know, your obvious love and admiration and what I assume the extension of your team's very much came through in the film because in, in the room full of people that we watched it with, everyone was, you know, kind of yelling and not yelling, but like commenting and just out of emotional response. You elicited a very real emotional response from everybody. And within whatever, how long that section was, eight minutes? By oh, the yeah. end, people were like on the edge of their seat cheering. And obviously, you know, uh, there's there's hard stuff that happens, but... Uh, the connection that you guys were able to make in such a short amount of time was was pretty miraculous. And, and yeah, it was very I, clear like how much it meant to you, Ben, because you put out a video, you shared a bit of behind the scenes recently on Instagram. When you got the first, was that when the kittens came or where, when you got the first shot? I can't recall now. Oh, that was the, whenever I turned into a bubbling mess. Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was whenever we got the got the kittens on footage. Yeah. yeah, it was one of the greatest days of my life. Hands yeah, down. wow. But, but talking about that emotions, Tyler, you know, whenever we got all that footage in, we're like, all right, how can we get the most out of this footage? Because we had a kitten that died and then we had this mom like walking around crying out. And I actually had a kid at the same time, Birdie, uh, my daughter. And I was like kind of analyzing my wife and trying to figure out like what emotional cues she would have. And I was like, all right, what is the, what is the worst sound the mother can hear? It's like silence. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and like I've screened it to my wife and she's like, no, you can't put that in there. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm definitely going to put that in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, babe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try to make people, you know, go on an emotional roller coaster. It's that's that's what a movie can do. 
How did you capture all the amazing sound with the camera traps? And did and well, this is like a twofold question. <laughs> this is the camera geek in me uh, wanting to know more details. But it seemed like you had to build things that maybe hadn't been done before, and certainly wasn't like a go and buy it off the shelf and stick a camera trap down. Yeah, there was a lot of trial and effort. So our camera traps, they were, you know, it's a GH5S camera that sits inside of a Pelican case. And inside the Pelican case, there's this little computer that communicates uh, through a receiver with a beam break um, that is on the trail. So you set up this beam break on the trail whenever an ocelot walks through it, it triggers the uh, it's it's a Cognosis Scout is what it's called. And then it sends a radio signal to the computer. It tells it to turn on, which then turns on the camera and it begins to record. There's a fellow in the UK named Nick Turner that makes them. I think we have like number 39 to 47. So there, there's, there's not a lot of them out there and they're very... Um, accident prone like there's a lot of things that can go wrong so it's definitely not just like a plug and play type system it took us quite a while to get it dialed in um but it was cool because you can have different focal lengths you can record audio you can record stuff at 60 frames a second you can have you know wides medium tights multiple cameras on the same subject matter so you can kind of cut to an edit a lot better um and it worked out really well well, it was it was incredible. It was there. There were some shot, and I, I guess it's because you were using proper cameras to do it. Um, there were some shots that I'd I had kind of worked out that it was camera traps, but they really didn't look like camera traps, and that's a massive difference with a lot of wildlife documentaries before that I've seen. Is that you can tell, you know, and other than the fact that the frame is maybe static. It doesn't look like a uh, a camera trap, which is amazing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, once you throw on like a 70 millimeter zoom or something like that, you start getting a look and feel that doesn't, is unlike anything that you have with a, you know, camera trap that you get at Walmart or something. So yeah, and the resolution was high enough. We did like some slight pushes and slides and stuff digitally to where, um, yeah, hopefully you didn't think about the cinematography at all. You just got lost in the story. It was difficult for me not to think about the amazingness yeah. of the cinematography and what you'd pulled off because that's just my world. So I was uh, I was kind of, I think for, for most people, no, they're not going to. They're just going to be immersed in it. Um, but it was difficult for me not to wonder how on earth you pulled off some of the stuff that you pulled off. I and mean, one of the other sequences that I'm desperate to kind of try and understand is some of the fish sequences and the laying of the eggs. That was incredible. Yeah. So the Guadalupe bass, uh, do you want to talk about Guadalupe bass or alligator gar spawning habits? They're total, two totally well, different strategies. I have time. Let's do both. <laughs> Okay. So and and Ben, just just so you know, while we were watching this film, I had to tell him to shut up several times because he was like, "Ooh, I bet they did this," or "Ooh, I think they did that." I'm like, "Shut up!" And just oh, he it. was talking in the movie. No, no, like under my breath to myself. Oh. I was sitting next to him. Yeah. Oh Camera man. Camera geek came out. <laughs> Good for you, Tyler. Like, yeah. you should be like, you should stop talking. We are watching a movie right now. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I, I respect that. There's nothing worse. <laughs> well, it's it's a t and and this is I guess that's a backhanded compliment of Byron because he is such a cinemaphile that he had to have been so blown away 
by the feats that you guys had pulled off that he was even whispering under his breath during a movie. So, (laughs) all right, I'll take it as a compliment. Um, (laughs) So, so Guadalupe bass, they're this bass. It's a little bit smaller than a large mouth bass. It doesn't have, you know, the super large mouth and they're found only in Texas. They're a beautiful fish. Uh, Some people call them, Rattlesnake trout is kind of like a word that people use by, use for them, but they live in a handful of rivers and creeks in the Texas Hill Country that come off the Edwards Plateau. So, like your Colorado River Basin, your Guadalupe River Basin, um, a little bit into the Nueces as well, and where you have these beautiful, you know, limestone filtered creeks and rivers, they live there and they eat, you know, minnows and frogs and all sorts of stuff. Their um, life, their like predatory modes are a little bit different than largemouth bass. They're not so much ambush type critters. They, you'll sometimes see them often in the riffles or like right on the seams of eddies, almost kind of like a trout. So you can fish for them a lot more like a trout. Um, And they're beautiful, just beautiful vertical you know dark bars going along their body um super athletic badass fish like a good and it's our state fish of texas so you know that was one that we definitely wanted to tell the story of because it's this iconic animal that lives here people love the fish for them but nobody's ever really gone into the water and filmed them before Um, so we wanted to do a spawning sequence and what happens is in April, whenever the water temperature reaches a certain degree, I can't remember if it's like 68 or 70, but it's somewhere right in there. The males will go to an area that has some loose gravel and they will clean it off with their fins and with their tail. And just kind of make this little space about a foot in diameter, maybe 18 inches in diameter, that's nice and clean. And then that's the bed. And then the females, they kind of cruise the river and look for whichever male has made a really nice bed. And then the male kind of swims away from it and they try to go and, you know, lure the female in and say, like, hey, look out this nice clean bed slash nest that I've made for you. Why don't you have your eggs here? Um, and then if the female is impressed, then she will lay her eggs there on his bed that he made of clean gravel. And then the male will fertilize them. And then that's the end of the female's job. It takes her, you know, maybe 15 to 20 minutes to lay. Uh, her eggs and then she'll kind of like go off into deeper water and then sometimes she'll come back and lay more. Uh, Sometimes that's all that she has kind of depends on the size of the female. And then um, the eggs will hatch after a few days and then the male bass will stay on that bed and the, the, the fry, the little baby bass after they hatch will kind of float around with him. They look almost like a dark cloud. They're so small. And then over a couple of weeks, they, grow up and the male just kind of keeps them herded around together until they get large enough to where they all kind of disperse out where they become, you know, fingerling bass that will hopefully grow up one day to be a five pounder. 
Um, well, not Guadalupe bass. They don't really get that big. Two and a half pounds, we'll say that. So to film that whole um, behavior, what we did is we um, met up with a team of researchers outside of Kerrville at Heart of the Hills, and um, we put these underwater cameras um again we went with the pelican case route so got them all waterproofed and then we ran a coaxial cable out of them up to the surface and then we put these like little wi-fi extenders inside of the box underwater and then taped the other end to our phone so we just hung out on the bank and just like filmed fish on our phone I drank beer for like two weeks. <laughs> it was great. Oh awesome. my goodness. <laughs> it was great. And like, you know, we'd nail one angle and be like, all right, let's put on a 50 now and get it from the other side and get some different light and kind of maneuver it around until we were able to get our entire shot list uh, knocked out. And then, you know, got playful and we threw some stuff in there like a tire so we could make an Oklahoma joke in the movie. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> Love a good yeah, Oklahoma man. joke. <laughs> yeah, we had we had we had a good time making this film, but gosh, it was cool because like, you know, I've hunted and fished my whole life, but it's it's different to try to film it because you really, really have to become a student, not only of just like where that animal lives and what time of day it's active, but like what is it doing biologically right now that is a behavior that can be captured and what kind of story can you tell with that it's fun well ben when we talked uh, i don't know maybe a month ago and, and i kind of reached out uh to set this up you know and the film had, had been getting high praise and and that sort of thing and and you had said that a few people had made comments uh, that they loved the film except for a couple of the pro hunting comments and so I just, you know, I'd be curious to know, you know, your, yourself as a dedicated conservationist and, and wildlife filmmaker, but also as somebody who grew up hunting and fishing, you know, how do you, how do you successfully walk that line? And, and ultimately, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on being able to bridge that gap and, and kind of create awareness or, or collaboration across what are otherwise seemingly divided, you know, camps there? Yeah, I mean, I th I think it's just being honest with uh, with the audience, and you know, in the movie, we talked about how there was this great slaughter of of the bison that happened, and it inspired this, you know, kind of uh, desire amongst Americans to say, like, no, absolutely not, we should not live in a country that does not have a lot of wildlife like we should have um seasons we should have bag limits we should have you know these regulations so that all of us can enjoy wildlife so that they can't just you know be killed for commercial use and a lot of the people that were you know advocating for that were hunters you know you look at the teddy roosevelt generation the gifford pinchos like it's not something that's um, an opinion. This is just something that happened in our history of, of wildlife in the United States. So, um, you know, we incorporated that history into the, into the film and, you know, acknowledged that there were huge contributions uh, by hunters to, you know, bring back animals, especially game animals like the white-tailed deer or 
uh, Desert Bighorn. And, you know, we should celebrate those victories and say hats off to you fellows. Nice work. Let's keep it going. Um, so I think, you know, there was a little bit of pushback on the film by some people that reviewed it that probably aren't familiar with that portion of history and maybe thought that it was kind of, um, inappropriate to, you know, give a nod to the conservation minded hunters that have done so much in our country, but hopefully they'll, you know, dive into some history and, 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 uh, you know, learn about the the rich wildlife history that we have in the United States and the role that that hunting has played, good and bad. Yeah, and you were you were very fair and balanced in that, Ben. Because uh, maybe we can expand on this a little. You spent quite a bit of time in the film dedicated to talking about mountain lions and the role they play in the landscape and the issues that they face. And uh, th- that was that's kind of on the other side of the coin when it comes to regulations and the hunting of mountain lions. We've actually just run a piece on mountain lions in the latest volume and the kind of general, it's a complicated issue, but the, the, if there was one takeaway from it, it was this, it was that the hunting of mountain lions isn't the problem, the lack of regulation or the, the inappropriate regulation is in some places. Um, tell us about the mountain lion section in the film. Yeah, so in Texas, mountain lions don't have any seasons or any regulations of any kind. So, you know, they can be trapped, they can be hunted, they can be shot, they can be killed. Um, 24-7, 365. So they're vermin, basically, or that's how they're treated, is it? No, they're not They're not treated as good as like a fur-bearing vermin because the fur bearers in Texas, they have trap checks where, you know, after 36 hours, you have to check that trap. That does not apply to mountain lions or, you know, specifically excluded from that. So, yeah, you know, what happens is um, you'll have a trapper that'll just set out a trap line of, you know, 50, 60 traps and just leave them there for a couple months and cat comes in, steps on it. And, um, you know, it can take several days for them to die. So that's just that's just where we're at with Texas. Um, I think that should change. And whenever we, whenever we started filming our mountain lion sequence, we weren't planning to make a sequence about mountain lion regulations. We were just trying to show off like, Hey, look how cool this animal is. Maybe we can get, you know, some hunting behavior. Maybe we can get some scraping or something like that. But, uh, a couple of months into filming our, this cat that we were filming, uh, came hobbling down through the canyon and we could tell he just ripped off all of his toes off of his front right. Um, so he got hung up in a trap, ripped off all of his toes. And then he disappeared a couple weeks later. And this is, this is a mountain lion that like, let's walk down that same canyon every 10 days for months. So we yeah. assume that he got trapped, but we don't know that. Um, and then you know, at the same period of time, we also found this bear that had just gotten caught in a trap and chewed its leg off and it was hobbling around without a leg. So we almost felt, or we, we did, we, we felt like it was true to what we captured and true to the audience to show that reality of what's happening in Texas. And, um, you know, there's a lot of data that indicates that we should be very concerned about our mountain lions in Texas. 
especially considering our population is supposed to grow from 30 million to 50 million people. We have a ton of, of fragmentation in areas where there's mountain lions. And, you know, without any type of safeguards in place, without any type of hunting season, without any type of science-based management, you know, it makes these animals vulnerable, uh, especially the South Texas population. The West Texas population, I'm not too concerned about because you have, you know, so much immigration from Mexico and New Mexico. But, but yeah, I would definitely love, love to see Texas uh, create a, a management plan that ensures mountain lions have a future here in our state because right now we just do not have one. Yeah, I, I would say that was one of the more upsetting parts of the film. And it's obviously something that I'm familiar with, Ben, mostly because of your work and, you know, you contributing to, to our publication a couple times. And, and hopefully I don't put you in a difficult position here, but I, I think that you're kind of in a unique position given your close collaborative relationship with, you know, Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation. And, and I, you know, as I do, you have a, a good relationship with the department as well. And, and so, I mean, do you, do you feel hopeful about not only the reality of that being able to change, but you as an individual with the platform that you've established for yourself and, and the sort of respect that you've garnered uh, for science-based conservation filmmaking? I mean, do you, do you feel like that's something that you can have an impact on? I hope so. I mean, I think the film has done a great job of spreading awareness about mountain lions. And, you know, one of the things that that's unfortunate whenever you talk about predators in the world is it's such a, it's such a polarizing issue. And I feel like the conversation a lot of time is being spoken of by people on the extremes and not you know, like the 90%, which is the rational middle. And, um, you know, like just because of that scene and some of the stuff that I've said about mountain lions, you know, I've seen stuff on social media and people's conversations about how I'm some, you know, left-wing anti-hunting, uh, you know, anti-trapper. And like, this is just ridiculous. Like I've literally hunted my whole life, but it's, um, it's hard to say, man. Like I, I like to think that Texas will create a, a, a science-based approach to mountain lion, and I don't think it needs to be heavy-handed either. I think you know, just having harvest reporting of the cats. Like yeah. you know, if there's a hundred cats that get killed every year for the next ten years, that means the population is stable. But just some type of data. And which we can know like, hey, these cats are doing fine or these cats aren't doing fine. And then if the cats aren't doing fine, then, you know, can we put in something like a hunting season with a quota, like all the other states in the West to ensure that that animal has, you know, a future in Texas? Because right now we, we, we don't have that. And, you know, a common theme that you see with humanity is we tend to tend to not even appreciate wildlife until it's almost gone. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier to engage in conservation before an animal becomes like nearly extirpated. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, you know, Texas takes that path with mountain lions and says like, all right, let's not kick this can down the road further. Let's put together some respectful 
um, steps for, you know, the hunting industry, for the livestock industry, you know, stuff that, that people can get behind. That's not this massive pendulum swings and take some small steps to ensure we have these cats. What do you think but is we'll the see. biggest, what do you think is the biggest roadblock? Is that, is that a constituency thing? Is that a political thing? Is that a, for fear of backlash of industry supporters thing? I mean, how do, how do you even, you know, what's stopping that? Well, I think Texas, you know, I think Texas regulation is a, is a dirty word and there's just, it's almost, it's, it's been really, I don't know, Tyler, like I, I'm, I'm very hopeful actually that there are going to be some positive steps for mountain lions. I really do. I think that the biggest challenge that you know, we're facing with this movement that I'm a part of to get, you know, some sane mountain lion regulations is, you know, people in the hunting industry or in the agriculture industry, like trying to cast my beliefs and our group as these, um, you know, like these, these crazy people that, yeah. um, you know, live in cities and, eat broccoli and like aren't connected <laughs> to the land and don't know what it's like. The truth. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's not true, but that's kind of the narrative that I've seen from yeah. some of the opponents to this effort. And it, and it makes me sad to not see, you know, more support from the agriculture and the hunting industry to be like, Hey, we should have some safeguards for this important species in Texas. But at the same time, we've only been doing this for a couple of weeks. And yeah. uh, so I think, you know, I think when, there's always a knee-jerk reaction whenever it comes to predators. And people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like, wait, before we talk about any type of regulations, like the first thing is, no, like that's a bad idea. Let's mm -hmm. not do anything. Um, and then hopefully people will see that what we're asking for with these proposed mountain lion changes are still the worst regulations of any apex predator in the world yeah like you know just getting some data down to where we don't don't lose this cat on our watch yeah i just i don't know and i'm a texan and i i think it's uh disgraceful and very arrogant for uh you know a, a texas government body or whatever you want to call it to think that uh, that uh, something as beautiful and majestic as a mountain lion should be excluded from what is a very successful North American conservation model. Yeah. I mean, you take a look at the North American model, like three of the tenets. Wildlife is to be managed in the public trust. Wildlife is to be managed with the best available science. And wildlife is to be managed by the state agency. Yeah. So almost half of the tenants are broken in regards to mountain yeah. lions in Texas. And I just, I don't know. I get a little fired up about it. It's, um, and, and so, and I'll, Byron, I'll, we can move on from this, but Ben, I would no, say, is, is there anything that we can do or anybody listening can do, uh, to help, you know, support your mission, raise awareness about this issue or to be allies in bringing forth some constructive proposals for, kind of updating that regulation. Yeah, absolutely. So we started a little coalition. There's a couple dozen of us called Texans for Mountain Lions. And it's just a group of landowners, uh, 
folks involved in the conservation world. We got hunters, we got ranchers, we got, you know, city dwelling environmentalists. We kind of got a wide swath of folks represented. And we have um, five things that we're asking Texas Parks and Wildlife to do. One is instead of having um, just a free-for-all trapping, have a 36-hour trap check. So you still have a problem, cat. Like you can still trap it, but you know, just having cats die over the course of weeks, like that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, so 36-hour trap checks, and then um, for the state to begin doing some science on figuring out where are these cats. Let's do some research. Let's figure out what part of the states they're in, what is their density, like where are we at, how many do we have, what is the situation. Uh, Another thing we asked for was to have harvest reporting. That way, again, like if you have 100 cats being killed a year for 10 years, that indicates that your population is is stable. Um, One of the others is um, uh, to, to manage separately by region. So like in West Texas, you know, most likely the cats don't need any immediate regulations. The South Texas population, on the other hand, you've got a lot more concerns about that particular area because the data that does exist, which I recognize is limited and should be expanded upon, indicates that that South Texas population is genetically isolated and is decreasing. But we don't know that because we don't have really good science around these cats. Um, so yeah, these are, these are some things that we're proposing. And then also for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department to create a stakeholder advisory group that brings in, you know, the sheep and goat folks that brings in the cattle raisers that brings in, uh, the, the houndsmen that brings in, you know, the outfitters associations that bring in, you know, the nature conservancy, uh, type of, you know, conservationists that brings in like a wide swath of different folks that utilize the landscape and be like, all right, let's figure out a way to make some regulations happen or to make some changes that happen that ensure that we have cats into the future because nobody wants to lose them. That's one thing that, that everybody keeps saying, but if we don't put any safeguards in place, yeah, you know, that's exactly what's happened to many species over the last couple of centuries. Well, and just real quick, Ben, I went and looked at your website and there's, uh, for anyone listening, um, it's Texas Texans for mountainlions.org and there's a take action tab. And it looks like you guys have teed this up perfectly where you just put in your information. There's a prompted message uh, that speaks towards the, the mission you're trying to do. And then you can add a personal message. And it looks like you guys have it set up where that's emailed to governor, lieutenant governor, governor, attorney general, secretary of state, state senator, state representative. TPWD Wildlife Division and TPWD Executive Director Carter Smith, who both you and I know. That's amazing that you guys have made that so easy. So I would say if anybody gives a shit about mountain lions, go check this website out and send a message. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. That's really Um, cool. I'm going to fill it out when we get off this. (laughs) Yeah, it means a lot. Please do. And, you know, they're they're listening. honorary Texan, can I fill it out? Yeah, it's not just Texan. (laughs) Anybody who cares about mountain lions should go fill this out help us save it. Yeah, man, there's been, there's been about 10,000 folks. There's been about 10,000 emails that have been sent out like that. So it's, it's awesome. really struck a chord and cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that, that something will happen because damn, would that be a shame to like 
lose the South Texas population and knowingly watch it go. Like that would be just just a a terrible travesty and um, just something that we should avoid. Yep. It's it's a good example of, you know, I see this quite a lot within the hunting industry asking and pleading for self-regulation for, you know, for for any number of things. And I think this is quite a good example to show that maybe sometimes it can work, but in this case it absolutely isn't work. And the example that you gave of, you know, just the fact that somebody and this is obviously not reflective of every trapper. I'm not making that statement, but the fact that there are human beings out there who are willing to set any kind of trap and not go and check it regularly and just let the animal die and starve and and die of dehydration and lack of food is disgusting. Well, it's also against like the standard ethical trapping. Like they have, sure. you know, like lists of standards and one of them is, you know, check your trap. So that's something right there that I feel like, you know, should happen. But again, Texas is Texas is Texas. I mean, it's it's a very unique, wonderful, maddening place to live in. And, um, you know, sometimes stuff like this where you think would be a no-brainer, uh, that it gets derailed because the commissioners, you know, hear from uh, the governor or from a legislator or something like that. So, you know, there's been a lot of landmark wildlife conservation type of things that have been right on the cusp of happening in Texas that have been derailed at the last minute. So I'm not, um, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but it's definitely true that, you know, for the, for the most part, like there was a, a poll that was taken it was like 92% of Texans believe that mountain lions should always exist in Texas. So people want wildlife we just don't have right now, uh, you know, management practices that that show that. Ben, as somebody who uh, is very open and seem very proud about your um, hunting and fishing heritage, you said a number of times in this podcast already, it's something you've done your whole life. As also a wildlife filmmaker, have you ever found that to be a barrier or a problem while you're trying to do great things and tell these amazing stories that are balanced and and are pragmatic? Um, to be honest, I think it's been a really big benefit for me because, like, take the whitetail scene that was in Deep in the Heart. You know, if you tried to get some of the best wildlife cinematographers from the UK to go down there and film that, they would be at a tremendous disadvantage compared to me because, you know, I grew up hunting deer, I guided for multiple years, like I know the in and outs of the ruts. So in that, of the rut, so like that is definitely an advantage that I have. I think that my career is probably too young and too early on to know if me being a hunter is going to impact some of the network opportunities I might have or some of the contracts that I might get. Uh, I, I, I don't know, but, uh, man, I find it so hard to like be myself some days. So trying to be somebody else is something that's just totally impossible. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's <clears throat> awesome that you're, you're true to who yeah. yourself and uh, you know, you and I had the opportunity to have 
lunch a year or two ago, which was the first time I'd met you. And um, it's I couldn't imagine you being anything else than, than the guy that you are, which is just open and this is who I am. And I asked that question because I, and I can't name them uh, on air, but I, I know a couple of very high profile TV presenters in, in, in the, the nature space who do hunt and will not talk about it because they are so worried that they will find themselves without work. And these are like t TV or nature um, presenters rather than, uh, some of them are actually also filmmakers, but quite often they're actually the people in front of camera. And uh, yeah, they, they won't talk about it publicly because they're just terrified that they're gonna be without a job, which I totally understand. Yeah, I mean, but it's like you take a look at, you know, the carbon footprint of going and killing a doe where you live at, which is what I did last year, um, versus, you know, buying chicken or veggies or like, like everything that you do has a big impact, um, on, on the world, like just look down the supply chain, but, you know, hunting locally, I think is extremely sustainable and, um, you know, providing you a fast death to the right animal is, you know, something that um, I've really come to not particularly enjoy as I've grown older because I've spent so much time around deer and like seeing individual behaviors and seeing um, what it takes for deer to survive, especially during a drought like this. And I, you know, it, I think I think you should have sadness whenever you eat another animal. I think you should have tremendous amount of respect whenever you kill something so that it can that it can eat, so that you can eat it. Um, and I think it's just it's just being honest. Also, I mean, a lot of the, the narrative that you see oftentimes with a lot of wildlife films is you know if people stopped eating meat, then a lot of our problems would go away. And they're right. I mean, like, you know, it's undeniable that meat has a much larger carbon footprint in the way that it's currently mass produced than if you don't eat meat. But like 97%, 95% of the world eats meat. So like if if you if you're choosy about how you acquire your protein, then you know, I th I think hunting is a is a tremendous opportunity for people to you know live more sustainably and i think that that's a message right there that um i feel like the hunting industry sometimes doesn't do that good of a job at at promoting um uh, but i say that there's also amazing people here in texas people like danielle pruitt and jesse griffiths that are out there talking about you know, how to hunt hogs and how to grow your own food. So there's definitely some leaders that, that I certainly look up to on, um, you know, how to eat sustainably and, 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 and locally off wild game. And it makes yeah. you a better naturalist. Like there is yeah. no doubt about it. If you spend a lot of time in the woods, being quiet, waiting for a deer or waiting for waterfowl or whatever, you cannot help but just fall in love with what you're doing and notice the different songbirds, notice the different soil types, notice the different vegetation type. It connects you to the land. Yeah, there, there's a reason a lot of our historic great named naturalists were actually also hunters. <laughs> 
and it's because they were immersed in the in those places with those species, and it it allowed them to understand them on a different level. Well, and I, you know, Ben, I certainly hope that as as things progress for you, that you won't be backed into a corner like that, uh, where you'll where you'll sort of either have to hide or abandon your you know your your hunting past, and you know that's actually a conversation we have a lot with. You know, as our, uh, as our, whatever, if Byron and I can call ourselves our career, but our trajectory, you know, continues to evolve. There's a lot of, uh, you know, bigger name brands that are not traditionally associated with hunting in any way that are hesitant or in some cases adamantly opposed to even entertain a conversation with us because they uh, just refuse to believe that hunting can have a constructive or, or positive conservation effect. And it, it kind of makes me angry. Of course, I hold my tongue on these calls and remain diplomatic. But in my opinion, and, and I'm not the only person who has this opinion, but you know, uh, in terms of the global scale of you know, human expansion and urbanization and deforestation, in my opinion, the only way that we can really make you know, effective and lasting conservation success, successes and wins is to have uh, accurate and, and effective utilization of every conservation tool we have. And there has to be collaboration on both sides of that, whether you're a hunter or not. And the refusal of some anti or non-hunting groups to even consider uh, hunting's positive role in conservation when done correctly is a major part of the problem. Yeah, man, I, I, I think I agree with the, with the sentiment of that, um, you know, there's, there's problems that I have with, with the hunting industry that sometimes makes me just recoil, you know, like some of the stuff that you see around predator hunting contests and a lot of the anti-predator yep. rhetoric that you often hear. But, you know, um, I think it's important to have these, to have these conserv- these type of conversations. And, and I also think it's important to, you know, during those phone calls, man, just ask that person be like, Hey, can I just take 90 seconds and explain to you a little bit about how this works and how you may have had like a preconceived notion about, you know, myself or the industry. And I'd like to just clarify a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, I think for the most part on an individual level, people are pretty open to good conversation. I think what happens with a lot of big brands and a lot of big networks and stuff is they get pretty scared of cancel culture. Yeah. For sure. And I understand that. Like I've been canceled before and it sucks really, really hard. Um, there's nothing fun about it and it should be avoided if you can. But what did you, you, know, what did you do, Ben? <laughs> was it something in particular? Yeah. Was this it river was, in the wall? No, 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 no. It was, um, it was after unbranded. I said, I was the, Wild Horse and Burrow Advisory Board's Wildlife Management Chair, where I represented the interests of wildlife on 31 million acres of public land in the American West. And, you know, I don't know how, know, how much you know about that issue, but right now there's about 50,000 horses that are in government holding pens. And then there's about 50,000 horses over the, uh, um, the appropriate management level or the the target population size that are on public lands. Whenever you have, you know, an overpopulated herd like that, whether it's horses or elk or cattle or whatever, they can start having a really serious impact on a, a particularly riparian areas. 
Um, and so anyways, whenever I was in that, in that role, the vote came up of whether I supported a, a lethal management option for um, excess horses. And I voted in favor of that because, you know, I, I didn't see a way to not have a lethal management option and still get the horse population down enough to where we weren't going to have, you know, severe long-term impacts on, you know, a delicate desert ecosystem. And, you know, just thinking decades or centuries down the line and having my priorities be native wildlife, you know, I made that hard call. And this is coming from a person that that has five adopted horses. Um, and anyways, yeah, there was, I, I was totally canceled for that for, for quite a while. And, uh, you know, you, well, you dive, you dive into controversial issues, expect controversy. <laughs> for sure we've covered the story once or twice before and uh, i've done the odd podcast on it as well so I, I i know enough about it and i'm intrigued enough about it to understand where you're coming from there but i think you you've hit on hit hit something on the head there that is a great failure i would say in many conservation organizations and and the structure of government and the way it works around the world is that they're not taking those long-term views, Ben. Most people can't think 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years to make tough decisions today. Amen, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So what's, what's next for you, Ben? I mean, are, are you just are you still just riding the wave of the current? Well, actually, I, I think I know you well enough to know that you must be working on something else. Oh yeah, there has to be. Oh yeah, yeah. We've got some exciting stuff going on right now. I'm finishing up the edit for a feature length, or not a feature length, a sixty minute film on ocelots, and that'll be out in November. And uh, hopefully, it'll inspire some action to where we can start recovering some ocelots here in Texas. Uh, in my opinion, that is probably one of the most exciting conservation opportunities that we have in our state. You know, to have this super beautiful endangered cat that lives nowhere else but in Texas. Well, with the exception of a few strays in Arizona that wander across the border sometimes. But we have the only viable population. And if we can expand that population into new areas, into their historic habitat, you know, we can restore this iconic Texas animal. And we should totally do that. The, you know, the source population is there in Mexico for us to get cats. Uh, We likely have a lot of suitable habitat where ocelots can be reintroduced in Texas. And I'm really hoping that, you know, both deep in the heart and this, this ocelot film are going to kickstart some of those, um, um, some of those actions that, that we can do to start getting these ocelots back. Yeah. Keep us posted on that. Uh, we, we would obviously love to help promote and distribute or, or just share whatever we can to help you spread that word. Yeah, man. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating history because, you know, ocelots right now, they only live in the Tomalip and thorn scrub in the lower Rio Grande Valley. So people think ocelots and they think that particular habitat type. But if you look 
200 years ago, we had ocelots in the Cypress River bottoms along the hill country. We had ocelots in the Columbia hardwoods, like outside of Houston. We had them in the longleaf pine forests. We had them in the Cypress Tupelo swamps. We had them in like all that big, beautiful hardwood forests up and down the Trinity and the Neches. So there were even ocelots all the way up in Arkansas and into Louisiana. And we know that because they have um, like historical documentation from fur trappers. They call them leopard cats. So if we imagine where all they used to be, and then we look at what's happened over the last 150 years where we've had massive deforestation in East Texas, we've had, you know, poison programs, trapping programs, um, overhunting. What happened is the ocelot it was just extirpated from all of those areas. But since that extirpa- since that extirpation, we've had a million acres of public lands be created in East Texas that now have, you know, old growth forests. We have, you know, a completely different conservation ethic with a lot of our private lands. And we've got a public that wants ocelots. So if we put on our imagination caps of where they used to be and where they could be now, it really opens up this idea of what is potential suitable ocelot habitat. And I just can't think of anything cooler than to like go to the piney woods and share those forests with an ocelot, this beautiful cat that looks like it belongs in, you know, the Amazon. And yeah, I mean, especially whenever you look at climate change, you've got more brush encroachment, you know, the 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 future for them could be bright. But right now, it's just going to take uh, some initial first steps and then hopefully get them off the Endangered Species Act, hopefully, you know, create the tools for the state and for, you know, private landowners to begin ambitious recovery. And yeah, it could be one of our most exciting conservation successes of our generation. I probably should have asked you this like in the middle of the podcast when we first started talking about ocelots, but there'll be a lot of people who are probably listening to this and think this is all fascinating, but I have no idea what this cat is. Just give us the five minute or less rundown of where they are in the scale of predatory cats and what their kind of uh, habits are and the things that they eat. Yeah, so an ocelot, um, Leopardus pardalis, is a small cat that's roughly the same size as a bobcat, but it's a little bit taller and it's lankier and it's more athletic. They have these really beautiful faces where they have um, almost like a linebacker where they have these black bars above and below their eyes. And their faces, the muzzle is white. And as you begin to go back, the, the, the hair turns this beautiful orange. But if you catch it in the right light, it almost comes off kind of silver. And they completely disappear in the dappled light type of forest that, they, that is their preferred habitat. And as you begin going back from the head along their neck, they have these beautiful chain-like bars that then... Uh, turn into rosettes that have along their their flanks and along their sides. And then whenever you get down to their feet, they have these black bands that 
are stripes that go down all the way to their toes. And then they also have this beautiful dorsal stripe that goes along their spine all the way out to their tail, which is then ringed that goes all the way out. So whenever you talk about wild cats, you know, Margay, their eyes are too big and they're all googly-eyed. Pumas, their faces are too short and they look weird. Jagarundis, you know, it's like somebody crossed a house cat with a weasel. But an ocelot, an ocelot is like the most beautiful cat species that we have. And it has coloration and patterns of all the cats from across the world. They're freaking awesome. <laughs> well, if that doesn't sell them, I just don't know what will. You are absolutely an champion for sure. Yep. Ben, it's been a pleasure to have a conversation with you and just let the world hear your enthusiasm with your voice about the work that you're doing and the film that you've made. Um, there is one thing I, I de I've definitely, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about this um, before we bring this podcast to a close, is you had a, a, a fairly famous person do the the narrative and the voiceover for it. How How did you pull that off? So, so Matthew McConaughey <laughs> narrated it. Um, so that happened about halfway into production. We got the film in a good enough spot where we had enough sequences to make like a 45-minute rough cut. And I Googled who Matthew's agent was online and it popped up. So I just called him on the telephone. I was like, hey, I'd like to you know, have Matthew narrate my movie. And, uh, here's a, a sample. And the agent was like, man, this is, this is cool. Like Matthew's going to dig this. So he sent it to Matthew. And then the agent called me back the next day and was like, Matthew loves it. He's in, <laughs> what are your wow. terms? What is the date? And Jeez. then like right there, we nailed down a date. So it was, it was a lot easier to get a hold of him than I had anticipated. And he delivered a phenomenal performance. Like, my God, the guy could just read off lines and he'd look up at me and be like, is that, that what you wanted? Like, you know, do you have any improvements? And I'm like, <laughs> no, <know>? man, <laughs> no, let's, let's just keep going down the script. So he, he delivered that whole script in four hours. My word. Yeah, it was cool. He, like he I can, see, he has a great voice. Yeah. It's a perfect voice for it. And it's, it, it, it's awesome because like he brought in, I think a lot, a lot of audience that typically wouldn't go to a wildlife film just because of name recognition. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great. He crushed it. Amazing. Well, congratulations once again, Ben. Uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, what is the best way to go and watch it? Because everybody needs to see it. Whether well, you're into nature in Texas or you're just somebody who loves the great outdoors in the world, you need to see this. So what's where's the best place? How do people go watch it? Well, man, I'm, first off, thank you for saying that. Like, I can tell the film really impacted you, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Even uh, though I whispered under my breath. Yeah. <laughs> it was in awe. It was, it was, it was an awe-filled awe. whisper. Yeah. <laughs> Um, right now it's streaming on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and Google Play. Uh, you can also get a DVD off of our website. 
And then if you really get consumed by it, um, we weren't able to put all the information that we learned into the movie. So we wrote a book as well that has all the best images and like a deeper dive into a lot of the different species and stories that that we researched for the film. So yeah, Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play. Um, we'll also be releasing a bunch of educational content later this month and just try to get the film out as wide as we can and do as much good with it as we can. Brilliant, Ben. And the, 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 I, I haven't seen the book in person, but I've seen your pictures of you showcasing it and that also looks phenomenal. So I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Well, a bunch of Aggies wrote it, so you know you're not going to come across any words you can't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. I've I've done my best to 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 you know Byron's on his naturalism uh, Texan Texan naturalism uh, path, so he understands a little bit of that joke up to this point. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Slowly. Yeah, that, uh, that, I got the cowboy boots. I still haven't got the big no. buckle yet. That's yeah. how I started all the films. Matthew McConaughey narrated it, but if, uh, if he says anything smart, it's because the or an Aggie wrote the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, gents, thank you very much. And uh, Ben, I look forward to whatever you're coming out with uh, next. And hopefully we get to meet in person again soon. Great. Well, I really appreciate it. This was a phenomenal conversation. You guys uh, are good at, at having these and asking asking tough questions. You know, this was fun. Thanks, Thanks ben. ben.